Paul has been talking about uh, in in Ephesians chapter 2. She just shares how in her past she had found herself kind of in a place of feeling like she had to put words in her mouth in some ways feeling like she had kind of hit rock bottom. Uh, life hadn't turned out the way she had hoped, she had planned, uh, uh, she had made some decisions that lingered with her, that uh, stick with her. The, she talked about the shame and the guilt, uh, but also this great redemption that's in Jesus, right? And as Paul's been talking, we've been discussing the last couple weeks, uh, the reality that spiritually speaking we were dead in our trespasses and sins but God made us alive there's great hope in the but God and so it's cool as you listen to her story and we listen to so many other stories if you've been around uh, we were showing some of these testimonies back in November and December as well uh, just hearing how God has worked and continues to work in people's lives as part of our village family and it's cool to see the the testimony of people mirroring the biblical truths that we see, that we were helpless, we were desperate apart from Jesus, but we're not defined by those things in Christ. Christ comes in and He redeems us, He makes us new. Uh, She mentioned washes us white as snow. Uh, So great reason to rejoice, great reason to uh, just celebrate the transforming work of Christ and all that He's done. It's truly a wonderful and significant thing that uh, we do, a wonderful thing that Christ has done. So we we celebrate that and want to worship. And So I invite you to uh, open to Ephesians chapter 2 with me this morning, if you haven't already. Uh, because one of the things, if you were kind of paying attention, at the end of uh, her testimony, she talked about how uh, looking to Christ, she, she found the forgiveness, she found the redemption that she had been uh, longing for in her heart, but then it was also the ministry of the church uh, that made a big impact in her life. In those initial days of trying to figure this stuff out and turning to the Lord, the, that the church came around her, ministered to her, uh, supported her, and then uh, found a place to equip her to also uh, use that voice to, to share the story of what God has done in her life. And so uh, in, in this passage, starting in verse 11, Paul is going to uh, kind of shift into some more more doctrine, like quite a bit of doctrine, but getting into this practical understanding of who who's the church, right? This church is, is a really wonderful thing. And so he starts our passage off today with uh, one of those words, you've been around uh, Christianity or a student of the Bible for any time, uh, raises your attention. He says, therefore, right? And what's the, what's the old adage? When you find a therefore, what? What's it there for, right? And so uh, Paul's making it uh, clear based on what he's been talking about, based on these truths that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were deserving of God's wrath, but God made us alive in Christ by grace. We have been saved, not by works so that we cannot boast. Therefore, if those things are true, then what he's going to dive into is that has implications for us as well. And so we're going to look into some of those things this morning as we look at verses 11 through 22. So if you got your Bibles, follow along with me. We're going to read our passage together this morning. Paul says, Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And just like he did in the first half of chapter 2, but now... 
In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful for these wonderful truths that are being laid out in the book of Ephesians. We are grateful that you did not leave us dead in our trespasses and sins, but that you made us alive together with Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us by grace as a demonstration of your love and your great mercy. And Father, we thank you even for the great hopes that are found in this passage as well, that we are no longer far off, but that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, as we unpack these verses, so much to understand, so many different cultural things to grasp, but Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment, and I pray that you would give us an understanding of your word, that we might live in the unity that Paul speaks about in this passage. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. And everyone said... Amen. That's awesome. I think just making sure you guys are alive and well with me. Uh, so Paul is going to uh, get into a lot, and, and frankly, in this passage, he's going to uh, outline many things that are, in some ways, they're foreign to us, uh, that we don't have very natural connections to them. We have to engage our minds a little bit to understand what exactly Paul's getting at, so that then we can come to an understanding of, well, what does that mean uh, in our context today? And so he, he starts things off with therefore, right? So because of those great truths found in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, therefore, he says, remember, this is the first time in the whole book that Paul has actually told the Christians in Ephesus to do something. Uh, So far, he has just been saying, here are these wonderful truths for you. So now, therefore, you ought to remember, remember who you were. And that's interesting because as he speaks to the Gentiles in the flesh, now Paul's not speaking specifically in this passage to this mixed audience. He's saying, hey, you Gentiles, you Gentiles in the flesh, by the way, that should perk our ears up because I think most of us are Gentiles, right? The last time I checked, I don't think a whole lot of us are of Jewish descent. And so we are Gentiles, the ones in some sense that Paul is speaking to. You Gentiles in the flesh, remember who you were. Remember uh, that apart from Christ, your life is much different than the, the hope and the, the fullness of the life that you have here and right now. And so he lists three things. Remember, this was the reality of your life before. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Which he says left you as a place in your life. 
having no hope and without God in the world. That's that's what he calls us to remember. Now, why on earth would Paul call us to remember those things? Because it gives this great significance to the but now in Christ, right? This contrast that Paul has been working. Life apart from Christ, life in Christ. Understanding the two is fundamentally important for us. And so as we look at these things, what he says of these Gentiles, what he says that we did not possess in life apart from Christ were things that were uniquely given to the nation of Israel. So I don't know if you uh, looked at our uh, small group study guide for this passage this week, you would have been uh, drawn to look at a passage in Romans chapter 9. And verses 4 and, three, 4 and 5, Paul speaks and he says this to Israel that they had the adoption. They had glory. They were given the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. He says, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, their ethnicity, their, their genealogy, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all blessed and for, blessed forever. Simply put, as Paul is saying, this stuff didn't belong to you. As Gentiles, you were foreign to these things. They belong to Israel. And, and what had happened over time is these things have become a great source of ethnic pride for the people of Israel. They, become, they became so focused on their heritage, so focused on the genealogies, so focused on the flesh, if you will, that they, they kind of lost sight of the original covenant that was made with Abraham. And this all in time created a massive divide between Jews and Gentiles. Massive division. You could call it, uh, in theology class this morning, we talked about the great schism that happened uh, in the church back in, in uh, 1054 AD. But this would have been the schism of all time. The schism, the divide of Jew and Gentile. They're like oil and water. They just simply did not mix that the Jews began to look at the Gentiles as, as the heathen folk, the people who, uh, they were unholy, they were unclean. They, they didn't have God, they didn't honor God, they didn't worship God. Uh, to be around them would make us unclean, as the Jewish would say. So there was this, you, you keep them at arm's length, and all in time this created a, a resentment even from the Gentiles that yeah, it, there was hostility and enmity between these two. More so... More so than Bears and Packers fans or Cubs and Sox. You think those hostilities and rivalries may be intense. Jew and Gentile was altogether greater. Massive, massive divisions. And here what Paul is addressing is that we need to deal with these divisions in the church. That in Christ, something has has changed. There, there's, there's a newness to what God is doing in Christ. But this division is what kind of spurred on this name-calling. If you looked at verse 11, he says, You Gentiles, you were called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision. So this isn't just mere like classifications. Right? We, we think, oh, uncircumcision. No, to them, those terms carried baggage. It would have been simple. They were derogatory terms. Like it became like, you uncircumcised. It would in some ways be, in our modern context, like the use of of racial slurs in the most cruel and and dishonoring sense to another individual. The uncircumcised and the circumcised. You know, there there was great 
animosity, great hostility between these two people. So uh, as, as we're even dealing with Paul's like, this, this is who you were, right? Remember, you were called the uncircumcised. It carried resentment. It represented that animosity. It characterized, if you will, the relationship that was between the two, Jew and Gentile. You just don't mix. You don't mix. Yet all these blessings, all these things, even as we see in verse 12, that were foreign to the Gentiles, originally, we, we got to understand that the intent originally was that those would become blessings to the entire world. If you were to remember uh, that Abrahamic covenant that took place, Genesis chapter 12, that in you, in Abraham, God promises that all the families of the earth would be blessed wasn't just that your family and all the earth would be blessed, but that all the families in the earth would be blessed. Genesis 17, that I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So in some way, what, what Paul gets at, not just in Ephesians, he gets there in Romans, he gets that in, to a degree Israel had missed it. In our small group this week, we talked about mission drift and, and scope, uh, what, what was it, scope? scope creep right and how how these things how over time they had missed this this purpose that they had ultimately been given they became so distracted and the mission had failed it no longer was about the blessing of the nations but keep the nations out so that the blessings of god may remain here and so paul hits on this in romans chapter 9 following verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 5 he says for not all who are descended from israel belong to israel And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, what he's saying is, uh, don't forget the fact that Abraham had multiple children, right? But it wasn't to all of his children that this promise applied, but only to Isaac. So it's not just by tracing your lineage. It's not just by going on Ancestry.com and saying, I tie back to Abraham, so I'm a, a child of the promise. No. It's the promise that matters. And that's what Paul says. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so what Paul is working to do, you're saying, listen, I know you Gentiles, you weren't a part of things, but now... But now, in Christ, the fulfillment of all this stuff has happened. You were strangers, you were aliens, you were separated, but now in Christ you have been brought near. That Jesus now brings to the culmination all of those of those promises and covenants. That there is fulfillment in Him, that when they are properly understood, when the Old Testament covenants, when the Old Testament practices were properly understood, they always pointed to Jesus. They prepared the way to Jesus so that God's people would see and understand. Galatians 3 says that the law was what? Our tutor, our guardian unto Christ. So that when Christ came, we might be, we might have faith in Him. All along, it's been pointing to this. And so, this great change, this in Christ, but now in Jesus, is so incredibly massive. Because Jesus has changed the ballgame. Verse 14, Paul says that Jesus Himself is our peace. He doesn't just say that Jesus offers us peace. 
He doesn't just say that Jesus brings us peace. While those things are true, in this circumstance, Paul is concerned with articulating that Jesus is our peace. He himself is our peace. So if you were to imagine, just for sake of imagining today, that this side of the room, you guys are all the the Jews of the world, and this side, you guys are the Gentiles, right? And, And down the middle, there is this dividing wall of hostility between the two, that you guys don't even want to look across the room at each other. You hate each other. You're against each other. But Christ, don't peek. You don't like them yet. Yet. But in Christ, He is the peace. Christ stands in that gap. Christ is the one who brings together the two sides of hostility so that where this once was, where the animosity once existed, now there is peace. And it's not just brought about by Jesus, but it's in Jesus. It is actually Him. And this happens, as we're going to see, in a few different ways. Number one, Jesus, as our peace, brings us near by His blood. By his blood. Paul doesn't just say he brings us near by his death. By his blood. Guys, blood mattered. And I know that that sounds gruesome, and I know that that may sound horrific, and in reality, it was, but it's important. It's necessary. If you go back to Genesis, Adam and Eve sinned, and what happened? A lamb was slain, for, the, for their covering. Blood was shed. God instituted the sacrifices where blood must be shed for the covering of sin. Blood represents life. And the spilling of blood is symbolic of the loss of life. And so when God demands these sacrifices, it is teaching us teaching His people that where there is sin, there is death. Death is necessary for the covering of sin. Now, under the Old Covenant, this blood was shed by unblemished animals. It would be taken to the tabernacle or to the temple uh, where sacrifice would be made for the covering of sin. In the New Testament... It is no longer done under the new covenant by the blood of lambs and goats, but in the blood of Christ. Remember uh, last week we celebrated communion. You remember as Jesus uh, instituted that, He said, uh, this is my blood of the covenant. Blood mattered. It always mattered. So that in Christ, the penalty of sin has been dealt with once and for all. The blood of the perfect Lamb had been shed. He brings us near by His own blood. Hebrews 9 speaks of this. If you remember from our uh, study in Hebrews a couple years ago, it says, For if the blood of uh, goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been made alive that in the blood of Christ we have been brought near to worship and to serve the living God. So that 
Paul's point here is, as he draws us near, Jesus, as our peace, is breaking down human barriers. He's breaking down human barriers. So it's not actually about ancestry. It's not about uh, your Ancestry.com report. It's not about circumcision. It's ultimately about Christ. In some ways, what Paul's going to get to is that's what it's always been. It's always been that we should be united in faith, not just by works, but united in faith so that now we stand under a new banner, one banner, and that banner is Christ, and all of us underneath that banner are united together. We're united in Christ. You'll see verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Jew, Gentile, He's made us one. And He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now that can probably be taken in in two ways. In a very literal sense and in a figurative sense. That Jesus has broken down this dividing wall of hostility. In a literal sense... Uh, this is where I th- Paul uses language in this passage that was kind of temple-oriented. Now, uh, you guys showed up to church today, and you parked in the parking lot, and you walked in. You got to come into the sanctuary where we're gathering for worship and doing all these things. But that would have been foreign if you were to show up at the temple back in the day. In the in the days of the temple, there were different courtyards. So, Jake, we got a picture we could kind of throw up just to kind of give you a picture of what uh, the temple may have been like, right? So you stroll up to the temple and you'll see along the outside the, these great courtyards. That was called the Court of Gentiles, where all people were welcome. Gentiles could come in and to, to worship and be part of temple worship, but they weren't allowed closer than that. Actually, if you remember when Jesus drives out the, the money changers and stuff in the, in the temple, that's where it would have been. That, that's where, I always stand to the side and it does this. The Court of Gentiles is, is where anybody was welcome to come, but then you'll see on the bottom left over there, another kind of courtyard. That would have been the Court of Women where Israelite Jewish women could go into that court. And then beyond that was the court of Israel, where where ceremonially pure Jewish men could enter. And from there you'd go into the temple uh, where there was the holy place and then the holy of holies. And you begin to see uh, in in the structure of the temple... And just how people would come, uh, the Holy of Holies being where God dwelt amongst His people, that as you would go into the temple, there was greater and greater restriction as you neared the presence of God, showing His people, showing His people that there is something serious about entering God. And so you have these Gentiles that very literally were left far off. You just could not enter close to the Holy of Holies. You were kept at a distance, quite literally speaking. And so in between that, on that wall that divided the court of the Gentiles, even from the court of the women, were these inscriptions that would say, Gentiles are not welcome here. And if you enter, you are responsible for your own ensuing death. And Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. So in a very literal sense, when it's you are brought near by the blood of Christ, this would have had very real pictures for them as they understood this. We're no longer kept at arm's length. 
But we are brought close in the blood of Christ. So that, as you see in verses 16 and 17, that both the Jew and the Gentile, we are both reconciled to God in one body through the cross. Verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So that this is and this is wonderful stuff. Verse 18. Look at verse 18. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So that even the Jews had direct access to the Father. Even the Gentiles. Both now, if you remember when Christ died, what happened in the temple? The curtain was torn. The curtain that, that divided the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn from the top down. Significant. That in the blood of Christ, in His sacrifice, we all have access in the same Spirit to the same Father. Because as Hebrews tells us, Jesus didn't just enter into the Holy of Holies, but Jesus now, brothers and sisters, has entered into the very throne room of God in heaven as our mediator, as our great high priest. And so we are welcome to enter into the throne room of God with confidence because Jesus is our great high priest. He has changed this. He has brought us near by His blood. So, literally speaking, there was this picture that you have been brought near. The dividing wall of hostility has been, has been torn down. Figuratively speaking, as well, that Jesus breaks this down because all of the cultural and ethnic barriers that divided Jew and Gentile are now uh, considered a moot point, if you will, because of the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That this hostility that existed between all of them is is done and gone, right? What does it say here in verse 15? How did he uh, tear down this dividing wall of hostility? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Wait a second. Didn't Jesus say that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Is Paul off a little bit here in his theology? In his doctrine? Maybe he didn't hear Jesus talk about that. The Jewish law was broken down into what you could call the the moral law and the ceremonial law. The ceremonial would have been that the sacrifices, the purifications, the offerings, all of the ceremonies. Those things Christ abolished because he became the fulfillment of those things. What they represented what they pointed toward is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So, logically speaking, if you were to think about it, if Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, if Jesus is our great high priest, then would that not be rejecting him to go on living in the sacrifices? Yeah, Jesus, I know you made that perfect sacrifice, and I know that you have you have brought the atonement for my sin by your blood, but I'm going to go ahead and continue sacrificing bulls and goats. I know, Jesus, that you have entered into the very throne room of God as my mediator and my great high priest, but I'm going to continue to go to a different mediator, a different priest. Jesus has fulfilled those things in himself. 
So that this whole issue, the uncircumcision and the circumcision, might be done away with in him. Because it's never truly been just about the physical circumcision. And that's what the Jews missed. It's always been about the circumcision of the heart. Always has been. That the physical, fleshly circumcision was a sign of an internal circumcision of the heart. A symbol, a representation of it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. In the law, in their law itself, it says that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one, Paul says, is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Jesus is our peace. Paul is saying, Jesus brings Jew and Gentile together. And then you'll see in verses 19 through 22, this, this new body that Paul is talking about, that as our peace, Jesus is building us together as one body, as one building, that we now have fellowship in Him. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the, the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we now have fellowship with one another. Jew and Gentile has fellowship in Christ. Because where there once was Jew and Gentile, now Paul says there's what? We are all one in Christ. Where there was male and there was female, there is now what? Oneness in Christ. Where there was once slave and there was once free, there is now one in Christ. We are one. Brothers and sisters, together under the banner of Jesus, we are one. There is no distinction amongst us. We are one body, one building for the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And this has implications that our unity with Christ is represents our unity as well with one another so that we are fellow citizens with the saints. That as Gentiles, they, they weren't fellow citizens, but now in Christ we are. Now, uh, when we went down to Tennessee uh, after Christmas, we were visiting with my family, and some of you uh, know my brother Becky, uh, some of you don't. Uh, Becky's from Ethiopia, and he came and started living with our family as a sophomore in high school. Uh, Bill, you got to spend some great time with Becky over the years at Aurora Christian, uh, but Becky is not a U.S. citizen. And uh, we were talking about that while we were down there at Christmas. And he was uh, just, he is in the process of wanting, needing to continue to keep up on his visas. And we were talking about citizenship and all these different things. And he was like, man, I don't get to benefit from any of those things. We were talking about voting. We were talking about uh, the different policies that, that as citizens we get to benefit from. And he was like, I, I don't get to, t-. it's like a, it's kept far off. And he was, Kind of lamenting that. I can't wait. One day I want to be a citizen. 
I want to go through whatever the process is so that I can become a citizen and share in those rights and privileges of U.S. citizenship. And what Paul is saying is that there, there are rights and privileges of citizenship with God that the Gentiles were once foreign to, but now, now in Christ they're fellow citizens. That is not like my, my brother's circumstance where uh, he can live here in the U.S. and still not benefit from the citizenship. When we are in Christ, there's no like sub-tier where you're like, I'm in Christ, but I'm not a full, I'm not fully in Christ. Like, you are in Christ or you are not in Christ. And if you, for those who are in Christ, you are fellow citizens. You are beneficiaries of all the privileges and benefits of that citizenship. It's a massive deal that we have been made one here and, and we are members of the same household of God that is being built. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone built on the apostles and the prophets. There is this oneness now that we have. And while today we don't think Jew and Gentile, certainly in the church, can we not learn more of this oneness with each other? Can we not continue to learn the implications and the significance of, of you and I and other believers being one in Christ? United under that banner, united in Him? That we are a temple being built up for the glory of God? A holy temple in the Lord? In Second Corinthians 6, Paul quotes uh, the prophet Ezekiel in reference to the church saying that we are the temple of the living God. God dwelling among us. God being our God, we being His people. So when we gather as Christians, whoever it is that that gathers under the banner of Christ, we do not gather as Americans. We do not gather as Illinoisans. We do not gather as, as Republicans or Democrats. We gather as believers in Jesus Christ, united under one banner, and that is Him. And perhaps there's there's reason that we ought to be looking to that unity more and more and more in the world that we live in. Because by our own nature, we are prone to divisiveness. But what Paul is bringing to the forefront here, when he said, therefore, back at the beginning of the passage, since we've been saved by grace... Since all people lived in their trespass, dead in their trespasses and sins, since all people lived according to their own passions of the flesh, doing what their body and their mind wanted to do, since all people were by nature children of wrath, but since we who are in Christ have been made alive, not because of works, but because of grace, that means we are united in Him. All of us. It's not because of what you did to get here. It's because of what Jesus did. So the point that he's bringing about is, therefore, since those things are true, our vertical unity in Christ brings about horizontal unity in the church. If we have unity in Christ, we ought to have unity amongst each other. Was it First John? How could you say that you love your brother? Or how could you say you love God and hate your brother? It's, they're incongruent with each other. It doesn't make sense that as Christians I can say, I love God, I have a great relationship with God, but I hate His church. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. The math doesn't work. Our vertical unity in Christ 
brings about horizontal unity in the church. And that is a unity that we ought to fight for. And it takes great intentionality on our part. Because by human nature, by sinful nature, we are not prone to unity. Sin nature leaves us prone to division and dissensions and rivalries. But in the Spirit, we are brought together and made one. So we ought to pursue and protect this unity that we have been given in Christ. And a couple of helpful uh, points just to close uh, this out that Paul brings to mind to help us do that as believers today. Number one, remember that we were called strangers to God. Why on earth would that matter? Why, why should we, if that was in the past, then why should that matter for today? Because when we remember that we were strangers to God, that encourages humility. That as we remember that, it, it wasn't me that got me here. It wasn't my own wits and wagers or anything of the sort. But it's by the grace of God. I don't deserve it. So it humbles us. It also instills gratitude. That, okay, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for who you have made me. Thank you that when I was dead, you didn't leave me dead. But you have brought me near by your grace. So Spurgeon says it's okay to remember uh, the pit from whence you were brought. It's okay to remember that because as you remember it, it's a, I don't want to go back to that. That's in my past. So let's leave the past in the past. But thank you, Lord, that you brought me from that place. And perhaps it will also encourage evangelism in the church today that we would have compassion and care and concern for those who are still living far off from God. That maybe, maybe remembering who we were, where we were positionally with Christ, and recognizing who we are now, where Christ has brought us would, would stir just a little bit of compassion to say, check out this hope that I have in Christ. And we would share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. Become broadcasters of this great hope. Secondly, we remember uh, who we were. Second, we need to learn to recognize where we create division today. Because while Jew and Gentile isn't on the top of our list of divisions, most of us probably couldn't tell each other the last time we thought about Jew and Gentile. But we still have divisions today. And we need to recognize where we have the propensity to create and foster those things, where we like to build up uh, walls and barriers between peoples. We do this politically, we do this doctrinally, uh, we do this with our philosophies and methodologies uh, within ministry and church. I don't like the way this church does this. I like the way that church does it. I don't like the worship over here. I don't like the ministry. And we create divisions. How could you do ministry that way? No, we're going to leave you aside. We do it with baptism. We do it with uh, things like communion. We do it with all sorts of secondary doctrines of the faith. We're like, we can't fellowship with you because you have a different opinion, different viewpoint of this than I do. Don't get me wrong. There are absolutely hills on which the Christian faith, as Christians, we should die on. Absolutely. But there are far too many Christians today, I think, who are dying on hills that need not be died on. We are breaking fellowship with one another over things that we ought to still find fellowship and unity. So great discernment goes into these things, and we need to examine it and be aware of this. 
Because the New Testament through and through speaks of the unity of the church. Watch out for those who cause division. And yet we rarely talk about unity. We rarely address these things that would divide. Because the reality is it's easier to just give in. So the third thing, respond. Respond by cultivating unity in the church. And I use that word intentionally because cultivating unity takes work. By nature, we divide. It is easier to see our divisions with other people, whether it's just personal divisions, whether it's some more corporate uh, divisions from church to church. And it's easier to see those things and say, I'm not even going to deal with it. You're brushing on the rug. We all know what happens when you brush things on the rug. You trip on it on your way out the door. So striving for unity, cultivating unity, does not just mean ignoring it. Cultivating unity means dealing with it and striving for togetherness. Striving for unity. Learning to be compassionate. Learning to listen perhaps more than we speak. Learning to put our selfish and personal preferences and desires aside for the benefit of other people. Learning to serve other people first. Learning to elevate their interests. Learning to serve and love one another. Perhaps one of the greatest hindrances to unity is self. It's very hard to stand in unity with other people when you are more concerned about yourself than others. So we need to learn to cultivate this in the church. Paul is going to build on this more in chapter 4 as he talks about this unity, especially within the body and gifts, and and he's going to get very practical with it. But for here and right now, we are left with this. We are one in Christ. Unified in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our peace, who has brought us near by His blood, who has broken down human barriers, And He is building all of us together as one temple, one body for the glory of God. So as we have unity in Him, let us have unity with one another as well. Amen?